Hi again, everyone. Stuart Gandalf here. Happy to have you back on a podcast. It's been a while. For those of you that are our readers and subscribers and uh, podcast listeners know that we do blogs every week and we do podcasts uh, when I think I've got a great guest and something to say. So uh, this week, I'm bringing back a healthcare success podcast veteran, Alan Shoebridge. Alan has become a friend of mine over the years, and he was one of our very first podcast guests. And he's back here because he's smart and insightful. Currently, Alan is Chief Communications Officer for Providence, Oregon. If you're interested in uh, following his blog, because he does share a lot of insights that I think are great, you can find his blog at alanshoebridge.com. So first of all, welcome, Alan. Pleased to have you back. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Also, you know, it'd be great to talk about COVID in a different aspect, but we're still dealing with it. You know, so looking forward to, to talking with you. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get, let's set this up. So today we're going to talk about disruption. And, um, you know, we often talk, we talked offline uh, last time we caught up about disruption. And if we have a little time today, we may talk about the disruptors that are coming into healthcare and probably have another discussion more deep on that in the future. But it's really hard to talk about disruption without talking about COVID. And some of our uh, readers uh, may have read recently or um, followed some of our writings on this topic with uh, disruptions due to COVID. Alan just wrote a really good post on that. And as well, we just covered a webinar on, you know, what to do with your marketing coming out of COVID. But today I wanted to get the sort of enterprise health system point of view and your point of view. And, you know, we all hoped that COVID would be over, right? We hoped this for a long time. And uh, we were in the sort of Maslow's hierarchy, and not Maslow, the Cooper-Ross grief model, right? Where people go to denial, then anger, then bargaining, then eventually acceptance or whatever stages of that. Some people are still in denial and anger, you know, there's their acceptance. But the reality is, you know, we're moved from pandemic to endemic, where it's just with us all the time. And so... I, you know, just starting with that, you know, recognizing that, you know, Alan, tell us, you know, tell me what your thoughts are about, you know, COVID and, you know, kind of where we are. And then we can kind of yeah. talk about that. Well, I think the best analogy is it's it's like this roller coaster and we're going through these peaks and valleys and, you know, you keep going up the hill and then you, you know, things improve for a while and it looks like, you know, changes on the horizon, you're, you're headed downhill, things are getting a little bit easier. And then you hit another, uh, you hit another climb. And that's sort of right where we are right now. And it's better in some aspects in terms of people aren't getting quite as sick. Uh, the hospitalizations aren't as high, um, but the virus is really circulating a lot. And that's made it incredibly difficult to fully recover. So I think you look at most health systems right now, they have not been able to recover their volumes. They're dealing with workforces that have been really hit hard by this. So, you know, think about it. If you, if you get COVID and you're a nurse, well, even if you don't have very bad symptoms, you're going to be off the schedule for five days. You know, if you have symptoms, maybe you're going to be off the schedule for 10 days. That means a lot of patients we can't see. That means schedules that have to be changed. So, you know, even though I think COVID's in a much better place in terms of its, you know, serious impact, it's just making it impossible for systems to recover and get back to where they need to be. And that's making it hard for communities too. You're just not able to do everything you want to do at the same level that we did back in 2019 or, you know, early 2020. And I think, again, we, we keep feeling like we're going to be able to get over this and then another challenges emerges. And that's, that's created a really hard cycle to work through. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, as we talked about a little bit offline, whatever the case numbers are, everybody recognizes that they're far, far lower or higher 
the real case numbers because people aren't going through the traditional models to get tested anymore. Either they're not getting tested at all or they're testing through self kits they buy and they don't report the results to anybody. And most times like, there's nowhere to report results to even if they wanted to. So that we know that's also just anecdotally I was talking to Alan about his own experience with COVID and mine. And, you know, most recently I got COVID. I was one of the lucky ones to get COVID with AlphaWave. I was, when they first started talking about breakthrough cases, that was me. And, uh, you know, traveled for two days and I came back with COVID. I would say now, you know, just anecdotally in my own agency, we have far more cases in the last month and a half than we've ever had um, throughout the entire pandemic. I mean, we've been, it felt like we were just being mowed down. And some people I know are getting hit for the second time, even after they've been vaxxed. And Alan, you were talking about your own experience with COVID. Do you want to share that, any of that? Um, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I took a trip and I tried to be careful and masked up on the plane, but then as, you know, social situations showed up and opportunities to, to mingle with other people. And I think I, I got it somewhere in doing that. And, you know, the hardest part was it really, I, I, you know, I, I, I was hit kind of hard for probably about two days where I was just in bed the whole time and, and couldn't do anything. But what I found to be challenging is, you know, the time after that, as I started getting better, um, but still being sick, you know, I could work a little bit, but I was isolated at home and I just didn't feel right. And so it probably took at least, you know, 10 days to even get to a point where I felt like I could really be productive for an entire day. And then probably it was, you know, about three weeks before I could just feel like normal again. And I've, I've been fortunate that I don't think I'm going to have to deal with any long COVID symptoms. But, you know, if you look at that, I saw, you know, some numbers recently that they're estimating, you know, 7 million people in the country. And this was in early June. And so it may have grown, but, you know, 7 million people dealing with long COVID. And I think about the ramifications for that on the workforce. So, you know, even when you're past the acute symptoms, but if you've got fatigue and, you know, they talk about brain fog, I mean, that has a huge impact on productivity. So, you know, when you look at the workforce, I think you have the initial hit that you take when people test positive and they've got to be out, you know, and, and isolate for again, five to 10 days at least. And then you have a recovery period that could be anywhere from a few weeks to months or even who knows longer for some people. I know there's people who are dealing with severe symptoms of long COVID. So, this is going to be a drag, I think, on the workforce for quite a while. And, and I, you know, that preparing for that's going to be really tough and it, it's going to take a toll. And so, you know, we'll look to see how that, you know, affects things. But again, going back to what we were talking about early on, that, that's making it incredibly difficult uh, for health systems and hospitals to service everyone they want to. Uh, it's just not possible because so many people in the workforce right now are, are being taken out for you know, a minimum of at least, you know, probably two weeks, if not longer. So let's talk about the um, economic impact to uh, health systems. And, you know, we talked that the irony is that many people mistakenly, including some news outlets, mistakenly believe that COVID is just a big scam to make hospitals rich. So can you tell us, you know, maybe a more informed viewpoint about what the economic impact of COVID has been to health systems? Well, I, you know, I've seen so many uh, statistics and reports, and I guarantee most hospitals and healthcare systems are are not getting rich. In fact, they're doing uh, they're struggling right now. You know, there's there's been months, uh, pretty much every month of this year, we've seen net net revenues go down. You know, so the profit margin is is way down. It's negative uh, across the industry, and even where I work at Providence, you know, we've had some really big losses, and it's all because of the combination of lost volume due to COVID 
and you know things on the supply chain and, and inflation, things are coming together in a really difficult way uh, for hospitals and healthcare systems. And I also, you know, in our CEO's report, and he said we lost money on every COVID patient. So even though there was CARES funding and other things that helped try to you know make hospitals and healthcare systems as solvent as possible, it's really a struggle. So again, you know, there's questions about what's going to happen long term. With you know, are we going to need more funding there? Um, you know, if COVID has this continual kind of peaks and valleys situation, that's going to make it impossible for healthcare system to recover without doing, you know, a lot of creative cutting and things and, and trying to figure out a way uh, to, you know, get profitable again. But yeah, if anyone thinks that hospitals and healthcare systems are making money off this, uh, you know, there may be exceptions, of course, and there probably always are some, but it really has hurt the industry. And again, I think one thing that people might not be aware of is the fact that, that the labor costs have gone way up. So as I referenced before, people being off the schedule, if you have a bunch of nurses that are out sick and they can't work well, you often have to hire replacements, traveling nurses, people may have heard of that, but those rates are very, very high. So that temporary labor is extremely high um, and those costs just hit the bottom line. So I think every healthcare system, every hospital has paid so much money in temporary labor to shift things around when COVID has hit their community really hard. So, you know, there's the flexibility of bringing in temporary staff, but it can be very spendy. So, you know, again, this is not in any way a financial benefit. And, and I guess I would also say that the societal cost of COVID and, and people getting infected and people dealing with serious illness, you know, we don't want that. So as counterintuitive as it sounds in a lot of ways, we want people to be treated in the hospital when they need care. We don't want people to come if something could be prevented. So if you could get, if you could prevent a hospitalization by getting a vaccine, getting a booster, we want you to do that. We want you to stay out of the hospital. We don't want more people in, in the hospital with COVID. We'd like to have as few as possible. And, and that's the reality of what we're dealing with. Very good. Um, you know, it's interesting. It brings me up to another question I'll ask you in a moment, but fun story. A couple of days ago, my wife went to a new primary care provider and she felt like when she walked out of there with instructions for four different tests and people she had to see PT and a mammogram and a this and a that. And, um, you know, she said, is this like, I feel bad getting all these services. And the, the docs looked at her and said, no, everybody's like that. Everybody's been putting off care forever. And I think that in, uh, in this case, she goes to Hogue, which is great because uh, they've got a lot of one-stop sort of shopping for her. She's going to get all of her stuff done in the same building on the same day, which is, you know, consumer friendly and centric, which is some of the stuff we'll talk about another day. But I think it's interesting that like how many services have been pushed back. So, you know, like um, at the beginning of the pandemic, you're going to like me, Alan, because you're a little closer to this stuff. Obviously, all the elective services were on disrupted, right? Only the most critical care right. um, and people were afraid to come in. Where is that continuum now? Is it still like an issue or maybe even like, you know, for example, Maybe I put off my colonoscopy at the height of it. I'm not that afraid of it, but I need any excuse to not come in. Like, where are we on that continuum these days? Well, I, I've heard that there's certain hospitals throughout the country that have a year's worth of backlog cases for, you know, those type of elective procedures you're talking about. So, yeah, I, I think the most essential things continue to happen, um, but there was a lot of what's called elective. And I have to say that term elective is sort of a misnomer anyways, because sure. it just means that you can put it off without having your life at risk immediately. But, you know, there's things like you talked about the colonoscopy where, I mean, that's, that's a key um, health screening that you need, you know? So again, it's, it's 
it's people have had to put things off. And I think there, there's been reasons why that have varied a little bit too. So if you go back to times where COVID was circulating uh, very heavily, especially when we didn't have vaccines, well, you know, people were just kind of scared to go in, let alone, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily if they could go in, it was, they didn't want to go in because they were frightened. You know, you don't want to wait in a waiting room where people might be, have the virus, even with masks, you know, there was just fear. And so people put that off. And then if people did want to go in, there was the scheduling issues that was there were a problem. And right now, one of the scheduling concerns is the staffing piece. So you might be able to go in and get something done, but maybe we don't have the right support staff or maybe the anesthesiologists aren't available. You know, this the surgery schedule is filled up. So it's a real combination. I, and I think we still have people in all those states. We have people who they're putting off because they're afraid of, you know, being around people who might have the virus. They're afraid of just, you know, taking that step to schedule something that might always be difficult. You know, you think about all the people who don't schedule their screenings, they do it even in the best of times where everything's safe to go in, because again, it's just scheduling a health procedure is always a barrier on some level to most people. You know, it's not something you want to do. And so when you add on additional challenges, like potentially getting exposed to COVID or, you know, you can't get on the schedule for six months. It just makes it that much more difficult. So we are facing all of those barriers and trying to work people through those. And, you know, again, it just really depends on your hospital and where you are, but you could have anything from a service backlog, probably from four to six weeks to, you know, a year, and that's going to take some time to work through. Very uh, makes sense. And of course, the problem with that, you know, initial problem, you know, the other unintended consequence of all this is, well, if you're putting off your colonoscopy, you could get up a lot worse than you would have had you gone That's in. Right. So you're already hard to convince people to get colonoscopy. You just gave them an excuse to put it off, um, legitimate excuse to put it off. And then, you know, but eventually if there's inertia. So just think about all the healthcare costs. And you mentioned long COVID a minute ago. So you've got long COVID, you've got all the uh, cost of care that's been put off. And then even stuff that's more subtle, like mental health or uh, you know, another long COVID thing, I have to bring this up. Uh, a friend of mine's a neuro... Uh, dean of neurology and neurobiology and uh, his big area of interest was olfactory and when I got COVID I lost my sense of smell and I said I looked it up and I said hey Michael um, they're saying if you don't get your smell back in 90 days shouldn't I do something now he's like do it immediately because <laughs> people mm-hmm. that lose their sense of smell first of all it's better if you do it immediately and secondly it's like it leads to depression all kinds of problems if you can't smell people that there's all kinds of documentation so these you know, obvious and less obvious. Oh, by the way, if you're uh, suffering from loss of smell, you can go to Amazon, look up COVID smell kit. There's four fragrances they recommend. You can buy it on Amazon. Just a little plug for that. <laughs> all the same sense, by the way. Um, so I think it's lemon, sage, no, lemon, um, whatever. You can look it up. It's on, it's available to cheap. Um, so I want to switch gears here on another thing on uh, COVID education. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, we want to keep you out of the hospital, right? As counterintuitive as it is, we want to keep you out and see when you really need to see. Did um, uh, Providence, tell about uh, Providence, Oregon's communication about, you know, education and it's such a political thing. And you know, I'm sure there's been kind of a bell curve in terms of the effort, but have you guys wanted to position yourselves in the community as leaders on this? And, you know, oh, obviously yeah. we only talk about this for X amount of time, but I think it's important to know about your educational efforts to date and how they've evolved. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, have the the kind of perspective of actually working at two different health systems during the COVID pandemic. And, 
you know, I would say that both uh, took a real leadership role in trying to get the community educated about what was going on. The challenge in the beginning was we were like everyone else, like trying to figure out what was happening and, you know, what information was coming from the CDC and other sources and how did we kind of figure out what was happening locally. There, there was a lot of, I think, things to wade through in the first, you know, six months to a year. And then after that, I think it became pretty clear that it was all about really trying to drive vaccination. We'd figured out how the virus spread. So, you know, when there was times that masking was needed at a higher level, we were able to support that. So I think it, it started out very difficult to just figure out what to say, when, but, you know, we made a really strong effort to do that. And then as the, you know, pandemic is, you know, like you said, moved into an endemic, I think that the education piece is, you know, not less important, but it's just, I think more people have heard the messages. So, you know, it's reinforcing the steps you can take when new things happen, like when the booster was available, then it, it you know, you shift into overdrive trying to do that. You know, there was the news a couple of weeks ago about, you know, children having more access to the vaccine. So then we can get our physicians out there talking about that. So I think it's become a little less of an ongoing, always trying to educate and figuring out the safety measures. And they're really now just helping people understand the risk and then what they can do when new things happen. So again, is there going to be a fifth booster? Is there going to, you know, is there going to be a, an easier to administer vaccine? Those things are going to be, I think, where our communications lie uh, in the future. You know, one of the challenging, other challenging aspects of this is just the amount of, you know, information that's kind of coming out from, you know, like a source like the CDC, it's really dropped off a lot, you know? So there's kind of this thought of like, well, and you'll hear people say, we're over it, you know, we're over COVID and, and we're really not because more people are getting it. And again, the hospitalizations might be lower, but there's a lot of cases going out there. Uh, I was just looking at the numbers uh, for us here in Oregon, and you know we were expected to peak at 325 hospitalizations in early June. Well, at the end of June here, we're at almost 400. So we blew past our peak. Again, it's much lower than it was during the during the last part of 2021 and into the first part of 2022, but it's still concerning. So, you know, it's just trying to, I think, keep people engaged, reach the people who, who still can take some actions. I think the way we've communicated has changed a little bit in terms of, of urgency and, and understanding what we're communicating, but we've got to keep the, the messages going and we're doing that. Okay. Sorry about that. I was on mute because my Cosmo, the wonder dog back there was barking. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of podcasting from home. Um, let's talk about, uh, that was great to hear. That's really helpful. And we, you know, for our part, we're writing in the very early days about, you know, taking that leadership position in your community, not just for the, you know, branding aspect of it, but it was for the good. And uh, I would expect, you know, a system like yours to take leadership roles. The uh, Let's talk about labor shortages. I remember, uh, you and I are on Twitter from time to time and I tweeted something about, you know, some of the marketing stuff we're doing. It's like, that's great. How are you guys handling labor shortages and, and planning on supply? So give us a sense about the, we already talked a little bit about the labor shortage, but um, maybe more now about like, how's that impacting your marketing? Yeah. Well, you know, and when we, when we talk about labor and healthcare, you know, there's always been this sense of, well, it's always a problem. Well, it, it has been, you know, there's been a shortage of, uh, nurses and physicians for years, and there's just not enough entering the field uh, every year to to meet the need. I think we're, I don't want to, I shouldn't probably throw out a number, but I know we're several million short of what we need for nurses and a similar number for doctors in terms of what the real community need is across the country. So that's been an 
ongoing challenge. It's always been something difficult. I've always struggled in sort of communications and marketing where, you know, you'll talk to a physician, let's, let's talk pre-COVID. So in 2019, a physician might say, Hey, I really need to promote my practice. And I'd ask, well, how long does it take to get in? And he or she would say, well, it's six months or I'm not accepting new patients. And I'd say, well, you know, we're not going to market that. But a lot of that was because the practice just didn't have enough capacity to meet the demand. And that was an issue. But I think now when you look at what COVID has done, it's just taken that problem and made it so much worse. Because again, you have all the struggles that were there before with not having enough providers. And you add on to that, the fact that you just have the workforce that has been stretched really thin. People are retiring, deciding if I'm, you know, you have a lot of people who are looking at uh, what's going on now. It's very stressful. People are dealing with burnout and they're saying to themselves, well, I was going to retire in two or three years. Well, I'm going to retire this fall or I'm going to retire now. So we're seeing that uh, aspect kind of affect things. And just so many people being taken off the schedule, dealing with COVID that's exacerbated. And I, you know, I know we've discussed, you know, new disruptors in healthcare and you have things that are happening with telehealth and retail clinics. And those are good developments in, in one way that they bring a new kind of care in. They, they open things up to the community, but they've got to be staffed too. So they're taking uh, providers from one setting and moving to another. There's just not enough uh, nurses and doctors and PAs and other things to staff what we really need. So again, this has been a problem that healthcare has dealt with probably for you know, 15, 20 years but it's just accelerated so much by what's happening with COVID right now. That's really intriguing. It's funny. I just got off the phone um, with a uh, employment um, disruptive platform <laughs> that wants us to refer, that we probably will work with them to refer some clients to them. And that's what they're all about is helping solve um, labor shortages because it is a big deal, right? And it's a zero sum game largely. And we were talking about at the lower level, if when you're working with, you know, for example, uh, post-acute care where like, you know, we've had, you know, skilled nursing facility chains where they want to train people up, right. To get them at the lowest level, because there's just not enough CNAs out there to service the people they need to serve. So it's, it's a big deal for sure. Uh, let's talk about the internal, the people that were, um, that, you know, don't leave. Right. So you mentioned the people that are retiring early or quitting or doing something else. And, but, um, you know, do you guys, on your marketing, you know, marketing in hospitals and health systems, you know, for the people that aren't close to that is a lot more than just getting patients, right? You need to market to your employees because there's a whole bunch of employees and maybe donors, there's community leaders, um, there's, you know, opinion leaders in the news. But, you know, internal marketing efforts can often be really important when you're trying to launch a rebrand or tell your employees what you're doing. Tell us about some of the things that you've been effective or um, working toward with your own employees. Yeah. Well, re employee retention is huge right now. So, you know, it, it's a situation where you don't want to lose your best people. You want to keep them engaged. Uh, it's a stressful time. So I've been at Providence about a year. And before that, I was at a smaller healthcare system. And, you know, I'll go back to how we started kind of in 2020, as we realized this was going to take, you know, a strong toll on the workforce is just keeping employees engaged at a higher level than ever before. You know, we upped the amount of communications we did. We looked at new ways to reach people. We leveraged a lot more video. We actually did internal things like shared our podcast internally. I think we took down the barriers between like what's internal external communications. And we really said like, what kind of messages do we need to get out to our employees? Let's do that first. And let's get the similar message out to the community. You know? And so we, I think just trying to drive that engagement, trying to show people early on in this pandemic that 
we cared about them. We were responding. We were doing, we were taking the right safety measures. And, you know, early on, it was a lot of trying to figure it out in real time, like what's the most beneficial thing to do, but just having a high level of transparency. And I remember, I think we were kind of six months into the pandemic and I wanted to do some survey work with our employees, just ask them, you know, do you feel more confident? Have, have the communications you've gotten made you feel more confident in the response of the organization? And it was a huge number. It was something like, you know, 85% said that what they've heard and seen from their leaders uh, made them more confident. And you know, if they're more confident in their response, if they feel like things are being taken seriously, they're more likely to stay. Um, that retention is going to be higher. So, you know, I think what we're dealing with right now is, you know, when I'm in my new role at Providence, I'm just, again, just about a year in, but as we were working through the first part of the year, there were a lot of efforts with uh, retention bonuses and other things to just talk to our caregivers, tell people how much we appreciate them, try to try to provide um, every incentive we can to make that connection stick because we know they've been through so much, right? And and now we're moving into this new stage of the pandemic where you know we're in those ups and downs, but trying to give people time to feel like they're making a difference in their roles. We're trying to encourage our leaders, our managers, our directors to, you know, ensure they're spending a lot of time with their, their teams. And we just are implementing this, you know, might not sound like a a huge thing, but for everyone who's stuck in a lot of meetings, they'll get it. You know, we're rolling out um, some meeting free weeks. We're trying to put aside some certain days, I'm sorry, certain hours on, on every day of the week where it's a meeting free zone, uh, just to give those leaders time to reconnect with their staffs, because what you hear from, I think, frontline workers and just people on individual teams is they want to have more interaction. They want to feel like they're listened to. So we need to carve out some space to do that. So I, I do think for the rest of 2022 and into next year, that retention piece is going to be huge. So those fundamentals of building a good team, uh, you've got to rely on them a lot. Um, you know, the one area that I think is still being figured out is is that mode for, for people who have been in, you know, away from the office. Uh, how do you bring them back uh, in a thoughtful way? So we do have a big uh, contingent of our non-clinical workforce that is still working from home. And we're thinking a lot more about how can we bring them back with some intention, not just to have people there, but to make the right connections, to make those uh, in-person meetings count and build on those relationships. So that that may be the one thing I think as we go into you know 2023, we've got to figure that out. Uh, everyone, I'm talking across all industries. How do you kind of move from these new expectations that employees have about greater flexibility and working from home, which, you know, I think we all get that it's, it's really maintain high productivity. How do we balance that with the need to, to make connections and, and get people back sometimes? So that's going to be the, I think that's going to be one of the big workforce challenges just from a logistical perspective that leaders are dealing with uh, next year. Good. So the last question is, um, this is probably a tough one, perhaps, but you know we're in a new place, and we're obviously uh, two and a half years ago. You know, how do you feel your communication efforts, whether it's you know marketing efforts or, or you know press efforts or whatever uh, things that you're involved with, will change? You know, that are in, irrevocably change and will change in the future. So, you know, like I'll I can well I'll just give you a thought, and you can jump in on with your own. But like for example. I've been noticing going back to what you're saying earlier about, you know, stress and how just kind of grumpy people are all over the place or, you know, the factors of convenience, but I'd love to know your points of view of like, how do you think things are going to change? Not just the promotion side, but like what consumers want and, you know, all of it, the whole package, the whole four piece. Yeah. I think that's a great question. And 
you know, one thing that strikes me is that as we're getting more ways to reach people, we've got better technology, we've got social media platforms, we've got a lot of ways to reach people. But that just makes it more complicated, I think, to ensure that the message is getting across. So, you know, you can spread your efforts really thin. So where I think we as a as kind of a profession on marketing and communications has got to figure out, you know, again, are we targeting the right people? Are we investing in the things that have the most impact? So instead of trying to do 25 things, reach people across 25 channels, you know, maybe it's 10 different channels that we really maximize. And I know you work with healthcare systems, hospitals, all different sizes. That's the challenge, right? It's like, how do you take whatever resources you have and invest it in the, in the best way? I think, you know, when you're looking at sort of the, the four P's framework, we're really struggling and probably will for some time around a couple of those pieces. Well, pricing, you know, healthcare pricing is something that is a huge issue. There's been some efforts to increase transparency and And I think those are well-intentioned, but is it driving new consumer behavior? It sure doesn't seem like it. You know, where the product's delivered and what the product is and the place it's delivered, again, where I think marketing and communications leaders need to make sure is that they need to make sure they're at the table when new things are being designed, when, when efforts are being made to prioritize what gets promoted and how that you're there in the conversation. And I wouldn't necessarily say those things are you know, revolutionary or, or haven't been done in the past, but I just feel they're more important than ever because we're going to be dealing with limited resources. I also feel like in most cases, we're going to be dealing with more limited budgets. So as our systems uh, struggle with bringing in the revenue, that means there's less for marketing and, and communication efforts. So you're going to have to get smarter about that. I don't know if that's a sexy enough answer to that question, but I think it's the fundamentals and then figuring out your resources in an environment where there's going to be less available for you to work with than, than probably there has been, you know, pre-2020. That's really a good point. You know, it's funny for our standpoint, <clears throat> the, um, you know, the, the cascade of effects. So it's funny now when we're talking about inflation and both administrations were pretty aggressive and, you know, helping people with the pandemic, right? Um, the current one and the previous one. And so there's a whole lot of money flowing into the, the you know, economy and, a lot of jobs were saved and a lot of companies were survived and, you know, billions into the PPP and all those things. And I remember even in the early days thinking like, isn't that, wait, doesn't that cause inflation? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, that's kind of like a no duh moment that we're eventually going to get inflation. Everybody seems so surprised, but like when you pour that much money into a marketplace, by definition, that's what causes inflation, right? So, well, the unintended consequence of that is that, you know, for example, one of our um, uh, businesses that work with a large multi-location one, which has private equity backing, uh, just cut a large part of their budget. And we don't know in this specific case, if it's why, but we're hearing this from other people that a lot of PE companies are cutting back because of interest rate rises, because it's making the economics change. So it's, you know, all these things, either indirectly or, do, you know, you could say, well, they're cutting back because of inflation. Well, why is inflation, you know, endemic? Well, big part of it was, you know, the amounts of money going into the marketplace, you know, after the pandemic. So, you know, those are big issues to think about. And I think that, you know, I think all your, your answers are spot on. I always come back to the four Ps a lot just because, you know, it's like the marketing person and he wants to jump to the promotion side, but that product is really critical, right? And the pricing structure and place now would include how do you deliver care? Is it telehealth? Is it urgent care? Is it, um, 
you know, primary care is, you know, how does that actually deliver it is the continuum. And then, you know, the pricing and the transparency and price pricing. And if you look at the product itself, what is the product you're selling? And if you look at promotion, you know, how do you promote it? And again, I think you had a really good point I hadn't thought of is the marketing budget's going down just in general, if there's less funds, and then you've got consolidation disruptors. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on all at once. So the you know marketing going forward is always challenging, but now you've got a lot less competitors, but you've also got savvier marketers. So there's just a lot that I think that as we think through our marketing programs going forward um, to be really savvy. And a lot, I love also, maybe my last comment on your comment was, you know, the idea of prioritization. I think it's such an important concept that people forget. So for example, yesterday, I got an email from a company that does, and they're probably a great company that does, you know, sort of turnkey podcasting for people and, you know, for healthcare systems and for other kinds of businesses. And that's a cool tactic and it's great for some, but it's not right for everybody, especially if you're, you know, limited resources, you know, but on the other hand, it can be great, you know, get your doctors on podcast, everybody wins, you build that leadership. So you just have to be really thoughtful on you know what strategies make sense for you at this point and as you evolve into the future. At any rate, Alan, uh, any other last words before we wrap up? I think this was fun. I think you did a great job today. Anything, last bits of advice? Well, I think I would just tell people to take care of themselves, stay strong. You know, this is a good time probably in some areas where if you can kind of recharge your batteries, take some time off, uh, get ready to plan for next year. I think it's helpful. You know, that's one of the things that we just didn't do enough of, and, and we really couldn't for some of the time during the pandemic, you know, travel wasn't really accessible and you're not saying you have to go somewhere. And we, you know, as we had referenced before, you know, the case loads are up, but I do think this might be a great time to uh, spend some time away, do what, do things that recharge your batteries. Cause you're going to need it. And, you know, our profession and throughout this whole pandemic, you know, we're not working the front lines of care and those people have experiences that I can't even compare to, but I know we've worked longer hours, done more. Uh, and, and, you know, in some instances, because we're working from home, we're working longer hours than maybe we even did in the office. So I just encourage people to take care of themselves, uh, get ready for next year and, and go into uh, go into the summer and, and try to recharge your batteries a little bit if you can. Good. Awesome. I think I'll take your advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, reach out to Alan or subscribe to his blog through alanshubrich.com. Alan, uh, always fun having you. Very insightful. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. It was my pleasure.